Well, brethren, I want to speak on something very fundamental today. My title is Drive Toward Your Goal. All of us need to have a goal. And frankly, if we don't have something in mind where we're going, well, we obviously won't get there. And that's very important to think about. There are various ways to think about our goal, but I'm going to present one way here to you this afternoon that is very uh, basic and very uh, fundamental. And as we go through the trials and tests of the next several years, and I think you know we're going to have a lot of trials and tests, with the horrible things that are happening right now, our nation just going down and down in so many different ways, and some of that attitude against God was described in the fine sermonette we just heard about how they just turned uh, against God in a despicable way, frankly, just a despicable way against God. You can't even honor God in so many of our public ceremonies anymore. And remember how God said there in Leviticus 26, if you break my commandments and despise my statutes, we despise God's statutes. And so our national economy is going down, our dollar is going down, our overseas reputation is going down, and everything seems to be going wrong, and there will be little ups and downs along the way, but the general direction will be down, down, down. It really will, brethren, and we do need to understand that. But we need to have a goal. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 3. And during the times ahead, let's focus on that goal. Philippians chapter 3, if you would. And I'm going to begin there in the Bible. Paul is talking about the power of the resurrection and wanting to have part in the resurrection from the dead. And that's part of our goal, being part of the resurrection. But it's not just being in the resurrection, just in sitting in heaven or with nothing to do. It goes beyond that, as you all know. He went on, if by any means, verse 11, Philippians 3, verse 11, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. And we all want to remember that. Don't think you've got it made. Please don't any of you think you've got it made. I have not got it made. And before Mr. Armstrong died, he said many times he knew he did not have it made. None of us have it made until our last breath. And God is the one, you know, to decide whether we really have been faithful to the truth and have been doing what God wants us to do. So don't think you've already attained or am already perfected. But, he wrote, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Now, Christ Jesus, our Savior and the living head of the church, has laid hold of most of you. Some of you heard Mr. Armstrong so many years ago. And you have come to realize probably that this is a real continuation of that work. And we're doing it more fully and more thoroughly as Mr. Armstrong did do. And others have heard our program and realized that Mr. Ames and I and the other presenters are telling the truth, the truth of God, the purpose of human existence, more than is being done anywhere else on earth. And so you've come and God has opened your minds to the goal. And the goal is not just being alive, but being in the kingdom of God. He says, I, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. He's laid hold of you to be part of the very family of God, which is called the kingdom of God. 
all through the Bible. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, yes, we've all made mistakes. And even after we're converted, we make mistakes, sometimes bad mistakes. As long as we don't make them deliberately and viciously, God will continue to forgive us, forgetting those things behind. And he says, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press. Again, he's pressing. He's driving himself. In Joplin, Missouri, we had a very successful football team that I was part of, and I was one of the two smallest fellows on the team. The very smallest was even the best one, as it turned out. I wasn't one of the best ones, but I was on the team. But his name was Roy Beavers, and he was the fastest man in high school in Missouri. He won the Class A state championship for the 100-yard dash and the 200-yard dash all three years of senior high school uh, every year. And we'd turn Roy loose, and he would, he'd go for it. You know, he'd, he was a good open field runner beside that. But our coach, Kaminsky, Roy couldn't just do it by himself. You had to have tacklers and blockers and everybody to get him to the goal and then stop the other people from getting to their goal and all that kind of thing. It was a team. And one of his favorite words, and he was a very famous coach. I mean, he stayed there a long time, and everyone knew about him in the, in the city, believe me. He, he, could, he had offers to go elsewhere, but he liked it there and stayed there. Rive. He'd say, drive, drive, drive. And he was, of course, bigger than the average high school boy because we hadn't reached our full size yet, even the, some of the bigger ones. We had one or two fat guys that were as big as he was, but they weren't in the kind of shape he was. He was about six feet and 220 or 30 pounds, but he was husky and strong with it. So he'd get right up next to the line in blocking practice, and if some boy accidentally hit him, he could care less. It wasn't going to hurt him. He got right up there, right next. What? What's is your leg broken? Drive, you know. And he let us know we'd better go for it or else. And uh, a lot of you have heard of some of these other famous coaches like that. He wasn't mean, but he was all man, and he had young men who were growing up in the World War II era. We weren't sissies, and we weren't used to being coddled and pampered and petted. So when he told us drive, it didn't hurt our feelings. You know, we knew some of our older friends were off in the war getting killed. So he, he talked man talk to us. And just once or twice a year, he would compliment you. And if he ever said that wasn't bad, you thought, wow, <laughs> that was quite a compliment because coming from him, the rest of it was drive. And Paul had that in his character. He wrote, I wrote, I worked more abundantly than they all. As you know, the apostle Paul was inspired to put that or God didn't let him just sneak it in the Bible. So he said, I press, I drive toward the prize goal. What is our goal? of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that upward call? Becoming members of the family of God and in a direct sense being members of the kingdom of God. And we're to preach Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom, the coming kingdom or government of God will be preached as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. It will come, and these things are shaping up powerfully now, and it certainly is coming, and that's very encouraging to realize. But we're to press, Paul was inspired to tell us, toward that goal. We don't drift toward that goal. If you get in a river, I used to swim in rivers more than swimming pools. My dad liked to take us down to his cabin and on a little river, and, and we had a cabin in a bigger river earlier on, an Elk River it was called. 
And we learned to swim in the rivers more. And you had you can't you can't just mark time in the river. You've got to swim or and and work, or you'll be drugged down the river, and you might go over the dam later on or something like that. So you have to keep moving, and you've got to do your part. So Almighty God does want this, and He puts this attitude in His Word for us today. Now, brethren, turn back, if you would, to Matthew, to the very words of Jesus Christ Himself. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most wonderful and fundamental parts of the entire Bible, as most of you know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew gives it more thoroughly than any of the other gospel writers. He talks about uh, doing charitable deeds and not showing it off, and he talks about praying in private. And then he says in verse 9, Matthew 6 and verse 9, in this manner, you don't have to repeat those same words over and over, but in this manner, this is the approach, the outline. Pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You start out by hallowing God's name. The first thing you should do when you get down is say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We, I love you. You're the great one that's given us life and breath and everything we have and begin to hallow God's name and describe his greatness. I know we have a magnificent tape, I would call it that, or a CD from Roger Bryant, one of our music teachers and soloists at Big Sandy. And we might pray for him, too. He's in another Church of God fellowship, but a very wonderful uh, person and uh, a magnificent voice, the best male voice we've ever had in the Church of God. And I just love his tape. He somehow put together all the all the best songs, uh, I'll Walk With God and The Holy City and How Great Thou Art and all the rest of them all in one CD, not tape. I'm an old-fashioned guy. I keep thinking tape. They're all on CDs now. But anyway, it's just beautiful. And he has colon cancer that's very bad. So we might be praying for our other scattered brethren. Many of them may come with us later. We need to pray for them as well. I just heard about Roger's problem. But I sure enjoy hearing that. And Cheryl puts on that CD virtually every Sabbath, and we can hear him singing. It's like a whole sermon hearing those gorgeous words with his beautiful voice. But you start out by hallowing God's name. How great thou art. Your kingdom come. What's the very first thing you ask for after hallowing God's name? The first thing. Your kingdom come. Your government. Please send Jesus soon as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's number one above everything else. Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And then he concludes the prayer. You start out honoring God and you then finish the prayer by honoring God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's interesting. You start out your prayer honoring God. You end your prayer honoring God. And in between, you ask for your daily needs. You ask God to bless the work. And you should be asking for God's Holy Spirit to guide you. And you should be asking Him to forgive your sins early on as you pray. I try to do that early on because then you can feel better about praying for other things after you've asked to be forgiven and ask God to clean you up and scrub you out and help you to become like He is. But then later on in this chapter uh, here in Matthew uh, chapter 6, he says in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life or what you eat or what you drink or what you uh, will wear. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Now, I don't need to take time to read all of this, but I want to today. I want you to think about what do you think about most of the time? Most people in the world think about these things. They think about, well, they've got to have food and they've got to have uh, better clothes or they want a new television set or they're worried about paying rent for their house or all this material stuff. Our mind gets on that, brethren. You know that. We're physical or we're thinking about our favorite television program or we're thinking about some other physical thing most of the time because we're physical. Our mind just gets on it. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your father feeds them. They don't have to worry. Are you not worth more than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about about being big? Don't worry about that. I used to want to be big and strong, but I kid about it today because I realize how empty that is. I can't add one cubit to my stature or 20 pounds of muscle. I don't want to be 20 pounds of fat, but I'd like to have 20 more pounds or 30 more pounds of bone and muscle. But you can't sit around worrying about it. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. So don't spend your time and your mind thinking about getting better clothes and better this and better that. It's not wrong to dress properly, but your main interest in life overwhelmingly should not be on those things. It should not be on physical things. And yet I say to you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God even made these beautiful lilies just gorgeous and beautiful things he's made all over the universe. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's going to take care of you if he is your father. And if you give your life to him, he will take care of you and take care of all your physical needs. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That is not to be the main thing you're thinking about or doing. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God is real. And I say that every now and then because I know that for many of you even here probably God is not real. You're newer or you maybe never been converted. You think you are, but God is way off and you're not really don't know God. And many of you brethren around the world, if you're not converted yet, get converted But don't kid yourself. That's one of the most dangerous things to kid yourself. You're converted when inside you realize you're probably really not. If you ever now and then break out cussing or you go back to smoking or drinking heavily or beating your wife or stealing or lying or breaking the Sabbath, you know you're not really converted. Your mind's over here lusting after women and you're doing other things that you ought not do. So you have to understand that. I don't mean a wrong thoughts to never pass your mind, but if you let your mind dwell on those things, you probably realize, well, God's Spirit is not actively running my life. So he says, you know, you better get your mind on these spiritual things. But seek first. This is it again. The first thing you ask for, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Then he says, seek first above everything else. The kingdom of God, that is your goal, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, you know, having uh, sometimes a young man will think over and over about getting a wife and that's normal as long as he's not doing it in some evil, lustful manner. 
and a young woman wants to have a family and have a husband, that's not wrong, or they'll want to impress the opposite sex, and sometimes they dress up too much or dress wrongly or to overdo it, or other people drive themselves to get too much money just to have more money, and they just enjoy having the money around, whether it does any good to others or not. I know back in the uh, 70s, I think it was, some of you older brethren may remember about the Hunt brothers. Uh, uh, Bunker Hunt and his brother controlled the, uh, they were billionaires from Dallas, Texas, and they controlled the silver. They tried to con get complete control of the silver supply and kept buying up silver. And uh, he was reputed to be worth about $2.5 with a B, and the dollar was worth twice as much. I think more like two and a half times as much at that time. So you can figure how wealthy he was. And one of the reporters interviewing Bunker Hunt said, well, why do you keep wanting more money? He said, you, you, can't, you can't possibly spend all the money that you have. And, and actually, Bunker Hunt did not have expensive tastes. I read a lot about him. He was an interesting character, and he would go into a bar and just wear an old leather jacket and wore a kind of a, a robe of jeep, you know, where he wouldn't be noticed as a rich guy. And he just ate with some of his old friends there and horsed around and one thing and the other. But he said, oh, that's not the point. He says, just, that's, that's just the way we keep score. <laughs> that's the way we keep score. Big monopoly, you know, and I understand that because Bunker Hunt did not know God and that was just fun, you know, like you want to win the monopoly game. So the more money you can get and the more property and the more buildings that Donald Trump can own in Manhattan, that's the way they keep score up there. But Christ says, don't do that. He says, seek first the kingdom of God above everything else and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. So you folks throughout the church here and around the world who may be seeing this, it's all right to want a maid. It's all right to want children or want your children to be happy and well off. It's all right to want to progress in your job. It's all right to want to have a decent place to live and a car to drive. But that is not the focus of your life. You want to be sure you keep that in line. And number one above everything else is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, your goal. I want to be in that kingdom. What is that kingdom? Well, you've heard us explain many times. The kingdom of God is God's family grown great. And I won't emphasize the family part this time. I often do how we're going to be born and come right out from God and have God's nature but it also is a literal kingdom or government to be set up on this earth. That's the immediate thing we're going to be doing. And we need to be preparing for a part in that kingdom and in that government above everything else. So seek first the kingdom of God. How can you prepare to be in the kingdom of God? What specific acts and deeds should you be doing to prepare in that sense to be in the kingdom of God? Uh, think about that, to seek first God's kingdom. Let's go back to Romans, if you would, Romans, the 12th chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul writes, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, not a dead animal sacrifice, but living and some translations translate it lively. You're to be a lively. You're to be active, alert, a living sacrifice. Holy. You're to be like God, acceptable to God, which is your intelligent or your rational service. It says reasonable or it can be better translated intelligent. 
It's not intelligent to just offer an animal anymore. Christ took care of the blood part of, of a sacrifice. That doesn't need to be done. You give your body as a living sacrifice and do not be conformed to this world and your attitude and the things you're thinking about and the things you're wanting, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's what you should be doing to think about how you can best give your body, your life, everything about you to God and in that way prepare for His kingdom. Now, should you just study the Bible and meditate and pray and fast? I emphasize those things a lot, brethren. You know that. So I'm sure not against them. I'll keep talking about them the rest of my life. They're vital tools, but that alone is not enough. Do you realize that you young women here, you could leave the church and become a Catholic nun and live in a nunnery? <laughs> and you, you fellows could decide not to get married and, and live in, a, in a, a monastery. And then you'd have all day to fast and pray and meditate. That's all you do. You'd have no mate, no family, no normal job. You'd just sit there and pray and meditate. Is that what God wants you to do? No. Those are just tools to help you draw closer to God so you can serve humanity as a whole and be a light to the world and prepare for the kingdom of God in other ways. So you want to realize those things are tools. That alone is not enough. They're vital, but they're only the basis for outward service to God. So think about what you can present to God. Present your body a living sacrifice. How can you present yourself to God and give your life to God in the best way? And here I'm starting with something I've mentioned before. We need to come back on this every now and then because it's so important. Brethren, what is your life? If you think about it from just one point of view, your life consists of so much time. Now, I have here a watch that was given me. I have two watches, an old Rolex that I bought about 40-some years ago, and it's not working right now. I have to get my wife to go fix it. But this, this was given to me on the 25th anniversary of my ordination as a minister. It has a little thing on the back, and Mrs. McNair probably has her husband's watch. And it works real good. Frankly, it works better than the Rolex watch. The Rolex is richer, but this thing is a little Seacoke Japanese watch. It keeps almost perfect time. So here I am, and what's going by? One second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds, five seconds of my life has gone by. Five seconds of your life has gone by. That is your life. How can you give your life to God one of the key ways, and it sounds too simple, but don't forget it, is to give your time to God. Give your time to God. That is so important. Turn back, if you would now, to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Some of you Bible students know where I'm going. Ephesians 5 and verse 15. Paul was inspired to say, tell us, See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Your sense, it's like the time is gone, like you've hocked your watch and you have to buy it back. I think you all know what God means by that. In other words, it seems like your time goes before you even know what happens. 
You start to do something and the telephone rings and then your kid spills something all over the rug and then other something else happens or your dog does something bad or something and or the you know, you're trying to concentrate and someone turns on the T V or something and your time just goes before you know about it. And here you're gonna have a profound prayer or Bible study or go help someone and something takes your time. Time is precious, brethren. Give your time to God. And some, one of the best quotes, and there are whole books on this, by the way, but one of the most succinct and helpful comments I've ever read is in one of the best books on management. Many top heads of major corporations used to be interviewed by the Wall Street Journal every Christmas time, and around the week or so before Christmas, they would publish in the editorials in the Wall Street Journal the favorite books for the heads of I, I, IBM or General Motors, General Electric, uh, U.S. Steel, you know, some of the major corporations in America. And I read them for several years. They don't do that anymore. But it was amazing to me how many years this book was mentioned over and over. The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. And you young men especially ought to try to get that, whether you're going to be a big boss or not. It's very helpful. In fact, it's helpful for everybody. You ladies, too. It can help your life. But he mentions some very important uh, key things in here, and he has a whole chapter, Know Your Time, and I won't read it all, but he's talking about top executives who accomplish the very most. He says on page 25, effective executives, and Peter Drucker, by the way, is not Joe Blow over somewhere in a corner. He has been recognized by thousands of business leaders and even college professors as the main primary expert in the study of management, knowing how to delegate and how to organize whole corporations and companies and this kind of thing. He was a brilliant man, a Dutch by nature, but living in the United States. Very brilliant man. He says effective executives, and he was counseling presidents and chairmen and presidents, not only of the United States, but of major corporations all over America and later all over the world. He said, in my observation, do not start with their tasks. They start with their time. They think, where is my time going? You see, they've got to watch this and that and something else all through this major corporation. Maybe their company in General Motors has plants in Michigan and some in, in uh, Illinois and some in California and some in Texas and some all these plants and all these tens of thousands of employees and getting the steel and getting the iron and getting the aluminum and the copper and all the other equipment that they need to put this together and make and make uh, automobiles and how do they do all that and everything else involved they got to deal with thousands of situations they do not start out with planning they start out by finding where their time actually goes they take an inventory of their time Recording time, managing time, consolidating time is the foundation of effective uh, executive effectiveness. Executives know that time is the limiting factor that output limits of any process are set by the scarcest resource in the process we call accomplishment. This is time. That's the scarcest resource of all. <laughs> time is a unique resource. Of the other major resources, money is actually quite plentiful. Well, many of you think it's not, but they're having a big crackdown. But, you know, up until the last few months, they could borrow money and billions of dollars and do this and that. They could get money. 
We long ago should have learned that it is demand for capital rather than the supply thereof which sets the limit to economic growth and activity and so on. The supply of time, though, is totally inelastic. No matter how high the demand, the supply will not go up. There is no price for it and no marginal utility uh, curve for it. Moreover, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored. You can store steel. You can put money in the bank. But you can't store time. Yesterday's time is gone forever and will never come back. I've tried to tell my sons as they grow up, your time is precious. While you're young, be sure you get your education. Be sure you build your body, build your mind, build your personality, build your character. Now, because when you get older, it's harder to do that. I can't do it as much now as I did when I was younger. Time is therefore always an exceedingly short supply. Time is totally irreplaceable. He goes down, uh, everything requires time. It is the one truly universal condition. All work takes place in time and uses up time. Yet most people take this for granted. Uh, nothing else perhaps distinguishes, get this, this is his final sentence, nothing else perhaps distinguishes effective executives as much as their tender, loving care of time. Tender, loving care of time. I'm, I'm going to watch my time and watch over my time and be concerned about my time, you know. That is your life kicking by. How do you use your time to prepare for the kingdom of God? You get up and wander around and put you on the TV news or maybe some stupid program that's not even news and sit there drinking coffee and nothing happens. You don't learn anything. You don't accomplish anything. And then you go to breakfast and perhaps while you're eating breakfast you talk about the ball game or something and you don't accomplish anything either. And then you go to work and during the time you're going to work maybe you have on some music and again, it may not hurt you to listen to music once in a while but you don't accomplish anything. And then you get at work and then you go out in the hall and hold your coffee and talk to the other people in the hallway and yak it up. And what are you accomplishing? And just think about it. Think of all the time we waste. Just vast amounts of time. Think about it. Nothing is as precious as time from that point of view. I'm just saying from that point of view. Well, Peter Drucker was on to something as many of these entire books. So you've got to try to give your time to God. Take time to put God's kingdom first and you don't all do have to do it just this way but one thing I've learned to do it but I know if I don't pray first thing in the morning somehow things start to interfere and it doesn't work out so I try to get up and I don't uh, I don't use time as best I should but as my family can tell you I'm pretty religious in that way I'll get up and I will put you on the news uh, cast so I'm, I'm doing two things at once while I'm shaving I'm getting the news and all the bad stuff about <laughs> prophetic happenings. But I'm getting the news while I'm throwing water on my face and shaving. And then after I shave and get awake, I prefer to get awake first, then I go pray before anything can happen. Say, why don't you eat breakfast? Well, I don't want to eat breakfast. I want to pray because right after breakfast, the blood drains out of my head and goes down in my stomach, and I'm not near as alert as when I first get up and have just got through washing my face and so on. So I pray before breakfast. And then I'm reading the paper during breakfast, so I save time while I'm chewing along, and I can take my time while I'm reading then the paper and getting the world news 
more in detail in the paper than you get on the radio or TV usually. And then I go to work, and uh, often Mr. Davis is kind enough to come back and forth and pick me up now that I'm not able to drive. And uh, I'm sort of on his way, but not perfectly. I have to zap out of his way. So what do we do? Well, I try to get out by 9 o'clock. Being older, I don't get there as early as the young people, but I try to get out where we can get in the car by 9, and then we hear the news again <laughs> on NPR, 9 o'clock news, and then we're talking about the world events and prophetic events and the work and everything like that most of the time coming to the office. And then when I come to the office, I sometimes waste time because I have all these emails and letters, and they all look interesting, and I'm a reader and I tend to want to read everything, and that wastes time because I've got to sort that out. I've been trying to get Monica to hit me over the head with a, uh, something where I can quit doing that, but it's a difficult. I've got to figure out a way to get through that stuff faster and not waste time there the first thing in the morning when I get in the office. Then I waste time through the day too sometimes, but basically I'm trying to accomplish, and at noon I often take people out to dinner to lunch. Uh, I eat, I'm going to try to eat more in the lunchroom, but sometimes I'm able, as Dylan knows, I've taken him out, just him and me and, and Rod, Josh Penman and me alone and Josh Beatty and different ones. We get acquainted more thoroughly that way and can talk about the work and get acquainted better in that way. So I try to do that with virtually everyone in the office at least every year or two. I can't do it every month or two. There's not that much time, not that many lunches. And I do need to eat out more often with Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and some of the other leaders, Mr. Partin, because we're talking over basic things in the work. And again, it doubles up on time, though, because we're not just having a meeting in the office. We have to eat anyway, and we're talking at the same time. And as you know, breaking bread sort of gives you a relaxing atmosphere and a sense of fellowship and bonding, which is good. But then... Before my stroke, I used to, after work, I go out right to the Y. And the YMCA, the big Siski Y, was sort of on the way home, so I didn't waste a lot of time getting there. And then I would work out, and that helped my body, or I thought it did, although I had a stroke. <laughs> but who knows what caused that? They really don't know. All the experts have said they do not know. The nurses told, told me, and even one of the neurologists admitted, said, we don't really fully know what, covered, what causes a stroke. And uh, they, they don't know. But at any rate, whatever caused it too much exercise or too much this or too much that, we really don't know. But you try. I'm not trying to go through my day because I waste time here and there. And I've got to do better. But you have all got to do better. All of us have got to do better to give our time to God, to give our life to God by giving our time to God. Now, it's not wrong to have a change from your work. One of my main changes was going to the Y every afternoon, and I would talk to people there and, you know, the unconverted people primarily. Once in a while I'd see someone in the church would kind of kid around with them, and I enjoyed that. It was kind of a relaxing masculine fellowship. There's this great big six-foot-five, 255-pound trainer young man, blonde-headed, great big strong guy, and uh, after I got acquainted, I made sure I got acquainted with him first, but I... I started kidding him around. I let him know how old I was. And I said, well, I said, now, uh, Chris was his name. I said, I'm coming up on my 80th birthday, but I'm in very good shape. I used to be a boxing champion, and I think we ought to have a special exhibition. We could charge a lot of money to this uh, unique boxing match between this man 
and this young man here, and you don't know much about boxing, and I could give you a hard time, and we might make a lot of money. And I would kid him about it. And then when the, he was home or didn't come into work for some reason, then I would kid the young girls in the training room. I'd say, well, it's Chris. Uh, home. They knew about the little joke I had, and he's not here today. Oh, he's home saying his prayers. He knows I'm getting... <laughs> I'm getting stronger every day, and he's getting he's getting older every day. Of course, I didn't say I was getting older every day, too. But anyway, so we'd go around and around about all that. But, you know, you can have fun, but you, but you can do it while you're exercising or while you're doing something else once in a while. But be sure you use your time to study the Bible, to pray to God, to meditate, to fast, but then to give, to help, to serve in the work of God and prepare for the kingdom in many different ways. You've got to learn to do that. Don't let your time go by. You know that old song, time goes by and so on and so forth. That's often the attitude of the world. And what's his name? Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. But uh, I don't think we're going to see Frankie Boy in the first resurrection, folks. I think, I think we'll see him later on. He did it his way, all right, but he's not going to be there. Anyway, so you present your life to God by giving your time and all the activities concerned with God and God's work. Now, secondly, the second big area here is you should give your energy and your talents to God. Just energy alone, you know, you can wave your arms, and but doing something uh, that requires your energy and your talents to serve God, that's also what God wants you to do and what you should think about just as a sort of a basic fundamental ways to give your life to God and to seek God's kingdom first above all else. Now turn with me at this point, if you would, back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I call this the Christian living chapter. We call Hebrews 11 the faith chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter, and uh, Romans 12 is the Christian living chapter. Well, actually, we've already been there the first few verses, but let's go to verse uh, 5. Paul writes, so we being many are one body in Christ. We see all one body in the church. We belong to each other in the family of God here, the begotten family, and individually members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. The grace just means not some sentimental word. It's God's gift to each one of us. He's given certain strengths to some, certain strengths to others. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in a court proportion to our faith. Now, brethren, that term prophecy or prophesy in the New Testament primarily means inspired preaching. It doesn't necessarily mean pr pr predicting future events. It can include that, but you look it up, it's inspired preaching. You see the way he words it here. Let's prophesy in proportion to our faith. And other scriptures describe it more fully. So if a minister has faith in God, he could come across with great conviction and he can help people a lot more. Or ministry, let it use it in our ministry. Or he who teaches, if you have the ability to teach. Some of our ministers are better teachers and some are better evangelists to rouse people and stir them to action. And each one has different strengths. Or as many of you women are wonderful teachers to teach people in school or teach young people and so on. We all have opportunities to teach, perhaps. 
he who exhorts in exhortation. And sometimes a father, a foreman in a factory or coach like Kaminsky exhorts. And certainly we ministers have to exhort. Exhort doesn't mean explain. Exhort means you're, you're saying, tell him to do something. You better ought to, you know, you better ought to pray. You better ought to work harder. That's what exhort means. So tell them heartfeltly in the right way. You better pray. You better do these things and learn to give yourself to that and pray to, to God to help you do it. He who gives with liberality. As you know, God loves a cheerful giver. He who leads with diligence. If some of us are made a department head in the work or in our office or our factory, do it with diligence. Get the facts and be sure you know how, who to appoint to this job or that job and how to delegate and how to follow through with your delegation to be sure that the person you delegated to is doing the job the way it ought to be done and so on. And that's not always your way. You could give them a... Let them be sure they get the job done. There, there are more than one ways to skin a cat, so I don't say you have to micromanage everybody, everything they do. But anyway, learn to do it the right way. Uh, he says, uh, he, let, he shows mercy with cheerfulness. Do it wholeheartedly. Let love, love be without hypocrisy. Don't be double-minded, acting like you love people and yet ready to stab them in the back. David writes about that in some of his psalms, how his enemies would come and be friendly and that they were wanting to kill him, you see, or hoping he would die soon. Abhor what is evil. And God wants us to abhor what is evil. When we heard this comment from Mr. Walker, or Mr. Smith, I mean, in the, in the uh, sermon end about this, this man who's explaining how rotten our society is, we should abhor that kind of thing. What a rotten system we have that people can get up and, and talk about homosexuality or perversion or almost anything, and yet they can't talk about God. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Powerfully cling to that and have deep feeling about it. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. If you're going to help someone, serve him diligently, wholeheartedly. Or if you're helping in the work, help it wholeheartedly. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Helping others in the church in every way you can. Within reason, in the right balance, of course given to hospitality, having people over to your home as best you can and helping them and encouraging them or taking them out once in a while if you can afford to. Blessed are those who persecute. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Learn to jump in and help and encourage them and weep with those who weep. You see, have that attitude. They're part of my family. I hurt when they hurt. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. Well, I'm too important. I'm kind of uppity. I'm, I'm above these other people. No, God doesn't want that. He hates that attitude. You're not above anybody. I'm not above anyone. I don't know if some of you are going to have a higher position in God's kingdom than I am. I'm quite sure some others will, even here in the church. 
because each of us has our own problems and God knows our problems. And if we think we're better than others, well, we're in trouble just by that very attitude. We're the, uh, my uncle Paul used to have kind of a silly saying from, it probably sounds silly to you, but goes way back to college years in the night, early 1900s. Uh, root to toot to toot. We're the girls from the Institute, you know. <laughs> some some women were all up at about they were part of a sorority or the fellows were part of a fraternity or we're better than you are because of something or other. No, we should not have that attitude. Be of the same mind. Do not set your mind on higher things, but associate with the humble. Don't just associate with important people. Do not be wise in your own opinion. That is a big pitfall if you think you're great or you're wise because compared to God, all of us are worms. And it's important to understand that and really realize that and feel that and know that, that we're absolutely nothing compared to God. We might have certain strengths more than others, but that doesn't make us better spiritually at all. So, brethren, we want to think about how we can carry out all these things. You ought to think, how can I give my life to others to serve the brethren, as the way he describes here in various ways, for instance, by visiting them, how many of you try to go and visit your brethren from time to time? You hear a young woman is sick or a young woman has just had a baby. Do you call and try to bring food for her or someone has died? You know, sometimes people know the families in hurting and they bring them food at that time and come by and give them encouragement. You can visit in person. You can visit, help people today by calling them up on the phone uh, by writing notes to them, just notes of encouragement. I get notes of encouragement from all over the world, and I'm kind of spoiled in that way, as Monica knows, but I really appreciate that. I, I read those notes, and it's just encouraging. Sometimes I come in, and I think, well, the work is growing so slowly, and I'm getting old, and here I have this stroke, and yet this note comes from way off, and thank God for what you're doing. I think, well, I guess life is okay. <laughs> they, they still appreciate what we're doing. So write and encourage people. I've told you before, this older lady about the age of my mother up in Oregon during my first pastorate, almost every week I was preaching up there the first sermons on a regular basis I'd ever given. And I'd preach some down in Pasadena, but not much. So I was preaching every week in Portland, Oregon, just a, a great huge church we had up there, about 20 people. <laughs> and uh, so very small. But Chloe Shippert would write me almost every week and she would say, oh, your sermon was so wonderful and it helped us and inspired us. And after she kept doing that several weeks, I knew she really was a very dedicated woman, but I knew she was trying to help me. I still appreciate it, though, because she was helping me and uh, so on. And one time I had this apartment and she sensed something. She said, I know young men. Well, she'd had some boys and she wondered if everything was clean in my apartment. Well, I thought it was just fine, and but she thought it wasn't fine. So she came by one time without even asking, because I, I told her I didn't need any help, but she just showed up with a mop and pail and this other woman with her, and they came in, and they found dust and all over that I didn't even know it was there. <laughs> and they cleaned it up real good. But she was there to help. She didn't try to tell the church about it. I, I'm the one telling it. But she was always helping people. And she would write others' notes. She would visit the sick. And she was a real deaconess out helping and giving and serving all week long in that way. 
And uh, then you can take food to people, as you know, as I've said, if a person, a woman's sick or they're having some problem, you can take them food for their household. And uh, I know that I went with my old Methodist grandmother. He used to take baskets of food out to the poor when the miners, they, Joplin was a mining area, and the mines would clo- were closing down a little bit during and after the war, and especially after the war when I was a teenager. And uh, so the miners were out of work, and I would, I very seldom, I don't know if Catherine remembers this, but my dad didn't want me to drive the car. We only had one car, but he'd let me drive Grandma out to, out to uh, take food baskets to the poor people because he didn't want to be bothered with that, so he thought I'd be all right with grandmother. I couldn't do anything too wild, and uh, I'd have to drive more carefully. So I was it good for me, because she would, she would take them food baskets and have a little prayer, you know, like the Protestants do, and pray over it and talk about Jesus. And I'm not sure they were too impressed with her missionary work, but they appreciated the food, and she was helping them and set a, an example in that way, as many people do even in God's church. Babysitting. Some of you may know that some of our younger women here have babies. Now, we don't begin to have the babies we did around Ambassador College because we had all these hundreds of young co-eds getting married and having babies and, and, uh, and kind of amusing all the babies we had. But we needed babysitters, and uh, Mrs. McNair's daughters used to help babysit for us. And, in fact, uh, Dorothy... Uh, 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 Surely, I mean, uh, was our main babysitter for a while. And uh, so with Elizabeth and Mike and Jim, and so they helped, they would come and babysit, and they didn't say we're going to charge you 50 cents an hour. A lot of them just didn't want anything, or we'd give them, let them eat with us or give them snacks, and sometimes my wife would give them something, but we didn't have to pay them by the hour as such. They were trying to help. And so on. They were they. A lot of the girls did that. They enjoyed it. It was a way to serve, and it really helped the people in the church to do that. And certainly, you can help people that are sick in other ways to serve them and serve the elderly by helping them, helping them in and out. As some people even help me in and out, and others that are much worse off than I occasionally can be helped so much. And then you. Young men or fix-it men. And I know one or two here in the church that are like that. Uh, I don't want to start bragging about the ones I know, but I'm sure several of you go out and fix up people's homes for them when they have a need. And uh, my son Jim out in L.A. is a construction man, and uh, you're not. He, he's doing that for years, and he never told me about it. You just have to hear about it from someone else. That was before he was even a deacon, but now he's an elder because he was out fixing people's homes up for nothing. He person didn't have any money. It was an older lady. Well, he would just put linoleum on their on their kitchen floor or a new roof on their house or help them in that way all through the church. And that's good. He was helping in that way as others do. <clears throat> and then you certainly try to show love and kindness and encouragement in every way you can all the time that's giving that's building these other people and making their life more complete you're giving your life your time your energy your personality to help others to build them to strengthen them toward the kingdom of god and then you give obviously as i've said you obviously do give by prayer and praying fervently for others and praying fervently for the work of God is the way that you're giving. 
And in other ways, being involved in deacon-like duties where you're helping set up here and parking, you know, and passing out psalm books and other deacon-like duties or deaconess-like duties, that's a way of giving. But don't do it to show off or to boss people around. We used to have super deacons in worldwide, and uh, it was overdone. And we found that some of these young men, they got the authority of a deacon, and then they'd boss people around in the parking lot, and some old lady would park in the wrong place. Well, you need no cat park. You just park over here. And, uh, and so I told them about that. And uh, you know me, <laughs> but we, we tried to stop that because you're not to be a, a bossy boss just because you're a deacon or deaconess, but you're there to help and to serve. And if someone doesn't do everything perfectly, it's not a, a huge problem. Anyway, try to help and to serve in the way that you do it, in a loving way. You can help then in fund drives if we have a drive to sell things to raise money for the work or for the local uh, uh, activities fund. Or we were talking about having a Tomorrow's World newsstand program. You older brethren may remember the newsstand program the Worldwide Church had for the plain truth, you know, putting in these newsstands and they have to be serviced. So we're not doing that. We might do that later, but it has a lot of handicaps. But I'm just using that as an example. There may be times like that you can pitch in and serve. You don't get any money for it, any salary. You're just helping build the work of God. You're helping prepare for the kingdom of God without charge. One of the biggest helpers in, in certain ways were the Hammers back at Big Sandy. Uh, Mrs. Roy Hammer lived up to be... What was it, 101 or 102? She lived a long time, and I think it was over 100 years old, so she was very blessed. And I remember that on the baptizing tours, as I've said, why Raymond McNair and I came by one year, and Burke McNair and I the next year in 1953, the third year with Dr. Hayd, we'd stop by the Hammers, and we didn't stay with them. They offered, but I knew they had a small house, so we'd stay in a cheap motel nearby, there weren't any expensive. There weren't any uh, Holiday Inns or, or Ritz-Carlton hotels, believe me, in that part of the country. <laughs> but at any rate, we would. she would always insist we come over there to eat. And then she would, uh, often a couple times at least, she said, well, I know you boys. She had five boys, I think it was. And she said, you have dirty underclothes and you need to have them. Oh, we don't want to see you to see my dirty underclothes. Well, no, no, I have boys. You, you, you just bring them here. She just orders. You bring them over here. Okay. <laughs> and boy, she'd wash them for us. And we had the cleanest underclothes we'd have for weeks after she fixed us up. But she was like a mama, you see, to all kinds of young men and other people all over the place. She just tried to give and to help and to serve for years. And then Mr. Hammer gave us the part of the land, and then his son, older son, Buck Hammer, gave us the rest of it, even more land that ended up being the property for Ambassador College in Big Sandy. How come we had a college, and I don't want to offend our Texans or any way, but it wasn't the most ideal place, I'll put it that way. It was in East Texas with the alligators and the and the uh, the frogs and the the uh, water, water moccasins and giant mosquitoes and everything bad was there in a sense and nothing was educational there but the land was given to us you see and it had this natural bowl that Mr. Armstrong called Buck's Bowl and started to have even think about having a whole uh, arena put in there for the Feast of Tabernacles but we wisely talked him out of that so we've ended up putting a lake in there 
and it became Lake Loma. He named it after his wife, Mrs. Herbert Armstrong. Loma Dillon was her maiden name. And so it became a nice lake, and we had a reasonably nice-looking campus, even though it was flat and hot. But uh, because that that whole set of property w- was given to us by Mr. Hammer and Buck Hammer. And uh, I think we had, wasn't it called the Roy Hammer Library, I believe? Roy Hammer Library. Mr. Armstrong finally named the library after Mr. Hammer because he gave us all that original land. And God knows that. How much can you give and help in various ways? So we honor those things. Then thirdly, the third major area beside using your time and then your energy and talents and serving God is your resources, your money, your tithes and offerings. And remember, God says, how, where have you robbed me in tithes and offerings? And I find a lot of even our brethren who've been around for years, they try to figure it, they'll give $17.37. I thought, what is this? I'm not trying to criticize. I just want you to understand. I've never, ever given $17.30 or $97.98. I would always lound it off to the higher figure, and most of us would, I think. I hope we would, and then give something beside for an offering. But a lot of people just try to give the very, very least they can and all of us should try honestly. And I'm not just preaching at you guys here, but you guys around the world. We need to give to God. You're not giving to me. I may not even live to see what you give. I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me. I'm just saying I, I have a different perspective now that it's what's happened to me. But this is the work of God. And you need to have the fear of God in the right way. To know that God is there. This is His work. He's watching everything that you do and everything that you say. And he wants you to give generously. And you should try to give generously, certainly within your means. Mr. Armstrong used to say, don't give. God does not expect you to give what you do not have. So we don't want the elderly widows to put themselves in jeopardy. That's not important. That's not necessary at all. But give generously according to your means. Now, turning back again to Romans 12, notice verse 8. He says, he who exhorts on exhortation... He who gives with liberality. If that's one of the things you can do, you have good resources, do it generously, and God wants that. That's what He wants. And then we turn on here to uh, go to another scripture here, Second Timothy, if you would. And uh, let's go to Second Corinthians, I mean, chapter 9. And you're very familiar with this because we read it often at at an offertory service. But let's read it here. The Apostle Paul is writing about this special gift of foods they were going to take for the brethren in Judea when they had Agabus came down and showed they were going to have this terrible drought. You see, and so the brethren, the Gentile brethren, had been given of their spiritual things. And now Paul is exhorting, exhorting them to give physical things, food to help these early original church members back in back in Israel. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren, you see, you better ought to, (laughs) to go to you ahead of time and prepare your bountiful gift. God wants us to give bountifully, generously, beforehand, what you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
If you try to give $17.37 and you're afraid to give and make it even an even $18, what are you thinking about? If you're about to starve, I guess it's okay. But most of us in our Western world are not about to starve. Why not at least round it up to the next higher figure? And if you're giving offerings anyway, you'd think it would always turn out to be a round figure and hopefully a lot more if you could. So that's what God wants. Also, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. God will bless you. You say, well, that's just preacher talk. No, that's not preacher talk. That's what God says in his inspired word. He says that. He means that. So let each one give as his purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound, every blessing, you see, abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. You say, well, I gave and God never made me a millionaire. No, I've tried to give tithes and offerings ever since I was converted, and God has never made me a millionaire or even a half a millionaire, and I don't think ever will. And I'm not trying to be that way. But He gives us enough, and we're fine. And I did without for many years and had to eat sometimes one or two meals a day in the early days of Ambassador College and plus on the baptizing tours for months at a time and many other times. But God takes care of us. We never starve. So he's able to make all grace abound that you always having all sufficiency in all things have an abundance for every good work. You'll have everything you need and able to serve. For as it is written, he is dispersed abroad he has given to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. Kind of quoting a psalm. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower, the great God who gives you your money in the first place and the very breath of air you breathe and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So he is blessing those who give and who give generously. And God promises to do that. That is a promise in his word. Now let's go back again, if you would, to uh, Matthew 6, where we were. Jesus' own words here in Matthew chapter 6. He says here in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now that's a command from Christ. You don't need millions of dollars. No one needs millions of dollars. One of our ministers said years ago, you can only eat one steak at a time. And I found that is true. <laughs> Some of you young men may possibly eat more than one steak, but you'll probably get sick if you do so. So you can only eat one steak at a time. And you want to use extra to serve God in every way that you can. So don't lay up treasures where moss and wrath destroy. You don't know. You might die tomorrow and the money would be give, taken over by the state or something. Or what could happen where moss and wrath destroy? Thieves break in and steal. They might rob you and take it if you have money there or other things. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, if your treasure is overwhelmingly in God's kingdom and God's work, preparing for God's kingdom, then your heart will be there and your heart tends to follow that. So that's God, what God wants all of us. 
here and all over the world to try to learn to do. And it's an important way, obviously, of giving our life to God and preparing for the kingdom of God. Now, a fourth key area, remember I mentioned four key ways to give your life to God and four ways to prepare for the kingdom of God and drive toward the goal of the kingdom of God. First, you give your time to God. Secondly, uh, as we have covered, you use your energy and talents in God's service. And thirdly, you give your resources including your tithes and offerings, or even as I explained, the hammers gave land. And there are other things like that that people can give. Now, number four, the fourth major area of giving your life to God and preparing for the ultimate goal of the kingdom of God. Four, prepare to rule. And we often give a sermon on that at the Feast of Tabernacles. I often do. But we've got to remember that. That's another basic, basic way, brethren. And again, I tell you, young people, and I'm not trying to scare you. I just want you to be real because uh, this world is not the way it was even 10 years ago. But uh, some of you, 10 years ago, you were just in your teens or you were, uh, you know, whatever, even younger. 10 or 15 years seems a long time when you're young. But when you're nearly 80 years old as I am, 10 or 15 years ago seems like yesterday. And time goes by very rapidly. And I'll tell you, just in the last year, things have started to happen in a big way that they never happened before in our nation. And we are in terrible trouble. And within the next two or three years, we're going to see that even more. And you young people have to realize there is going to be a real world government on this earth within your lifetime. Any of you who are under age 30 and probably any of you under age 50, if you live out your normal lifetime, I'm sure that will occur. And maybe within 10 years that will happen. I don't know that. I hope so, but we don't know that. But a real world government, a whole way of life will be different. We need it so much. When I punch on the, or my wife does run the TV, man, the uh, uh, BBC News, and they come on with this stuff all over the world in Central and South America and Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and parts of Russia and parts of China and all over Africa and the Middle East. Here are people starving to death, literally starving to death. One billion hunger. You know, you've seen these headlines they've come out with in the last several weeks even. One billion people and it's growing all over the world. Horrible drought, famine, disease epidemics and it's getting worse because these dictators crush their people, they ruin the land, they drive people off the land, and they don't know how to fix it up again or do it as they should, and things go wrong all over. So the world needs a, a right government, and it's going to get a right government pretty soon, and we have to really try to prepare for that as a reality. It's not just a pie in the sky. We'll all go to heaven and have nothing to do. No, we're not. We're training for a job, and you need to get ready for that real job, every one of you. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Yes, the saints of God are going to judge this entire world under Jesus Christ, of course. We'll be there. 
And many of you will be there without naming everybody's name. I hope most of you will be there. I think most of you will in this room, frankly. We seem to have a group that's been tried and tested and so on, but God knows. We will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So we've got to prepare to rule by making judgments in the work of God, the church of God, and having the right kind of government here and now, and studying God's laws and statutes so we can be judges. That's our calling. That's our goal. We need to prepare for that goal. Back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, Christ is speaking. He who overcomes and keeps my works, Christ's works, until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. We will have power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, even as I, Christ is speaking, even as I received from my Father, Yes, he has received that, but he's the king of kings, and we will be those other kings here on this earth, ruling the nations, judging the nations, helping bring a kind of peace and joy and prosperity the world has never experienced. Turn to chapter 5, Revelation 5, and verse 8 talks about the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Here's the song of the saints. You are worthy to take the scroll. They're singing to Christ. To open his seals for you, Christ, were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us, you see, the saints of God, kings and priests were rulers, and the priests were the teachers as well to our God, and we shall reign, not up in heaven, we shall reign on the earth. Says that over and over throughout the Bible over and over, reign on the earth. That's our calling. That's why we're here. That's why we're called now. God could have called us later on, but he wants some people to be ready now to help under Christ when Christ comes back to help rule over the various cities and nations all over the world under Christ's overall direction as king of kings. And now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36, if you would, brethren. <clears throat> Ezekiel, at this point, Chapter 36, turn there if you would. Here, God is describing what's going to happen to our peoples, the descendants of the British descended and American people. He says in verse 24, for, well, he says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, and remember, this was written, every scholar acknowledges, over a hundred years after ancient Israel's captivity. It's talking about a yet future captivity. And he says, For I'll take you from among the nations, verse 24, gather you out of the countries and bring you into your own land, bring us back to Israel at first, and then I will sprinkle clean water, you'll be clean from your filthiness, and I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. God will give the people His Holy Spirit, and will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. Verse 27, notice. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Brethren, I have said many times, and I will give a whole sermon on this again later. I have already a couple of years ago, but on God's statutes. We need to study those statutes. Yes, they're spiritually magnified, but magnified does not mean to do away with. 
The Passover is a statute. It's not done away. It's just that we keep the red wine rather than the animal blood, and we have the we have the the uh, broken bread, and rather than bitter herbs, and we keep it in a slightly different way. But the statute is still there. Circumcision was a statute. It's not done away. We all become one in Christ Jesus by being spiritually circumcised, and all of us become together spiritual Israelites. So we have to know that. I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall walk in my statutes. Brethren, we need to be prepared to teach those statutes. How many of you have studied the statutes? I uh, might give you a little help here if you want, if some of you are taking notes. I sometimes go back and read them and probably should even more, but the statutes are found primarily in Exodus 20, chapters 20 to 24, and they're found then in Leviticus, chapter 16 through 27, a lot of reading there, <laughs> Leviticus, chapter 16 through 27, and primarily then in Numbers 8, 18 and 19, and then 30 through 36. But anyway, there are other places. Those are where most of them are. And then Deuteronomy 12 through 28. Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 28. A lot of places where the statutes are described in detail. Some of them are overlapping, of course, but it's still helpful. So God, read those statutes and you'll see they make sense. They're a way of life telling you God's mind in a physical way of life, how to love your neighbor as yourself, how to have a good city, he tells you if you have a flat roof where people would walk on it, you know, as they do in the Middle East, they get up on the roof. What are you to do? You're to put a railing around there so people don't fall off. Well, now that's part of the building codes today in most cities, but probably there are places in the Middle East where there are no building codes and people just fall off. <laughs> if you don't obey those statutes, you're in trouble. It's a principle, a way of life that works. Study the statutes as part of the mind of God. And then certainly study the whole New Testament, which magnifies God's Ten Commandments and His statutes and judgments. That's what God wants. Get ready. It's real. It's coming. And it's going to affect your life, and hopefully every one of you are going to be part of it. Now, brethren, turn back now to Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. Here he describes... In verse 21, Surely I'll take the children of Israel from the nations where they've gone, gather them, bring them into their own land, make them one nation, and Judah and Israel will be made one nation again when Christ comes back and gathers them. And verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. David... Why is King David going to be over all of Israel, all 12 tribes? He's going to be the boss over Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and the others. He was the king of Israel for 40 years and the best king. And what did David do? He studied God's statutes. He said, that's my meditation day and night. Do you study God's statutes? David really knew God's statutes. He's very able to step right in. So those are not unimportant. Our future boss will know the statutes, our immediate boss, perhaps King David. So get real. This we're, we're need to prepare for a literal government to be set up. Now let's turn to, if you would, to uh, Philippians here, chapter 3. 
Philippians chapter 3 and uh, again and I want to just close this he says in verse 13 brethren I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead the commentaries say this is like a chariot driver he had to balance himself very carefully on the chariot and reaching forward like that not to be pulled forward or to fall backward and so on. He says, I'm, I'm a very alert, you see. I've got to be ready. I press, I drive, as Kaminsky would say, <laughs> toward the goal. What is our goal of the prize of the high calling of God, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind And brethren, I beseech you in the name of Christ, have the mind of Christ. Think about the very real kingdom of God, the real job that you should be doing and how you can give your life to God and how you can genuinely set that goal and drive yourself toward that goal of being part of the coming government of God on this earth by learning to give your time, your talents, your resources and your whole being to God now and driving toward the goal of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is our goal. Let's drive toward that goal.